the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Pharaoh has to repent, but at this point, Moses says, you're right, I'm not coming back to this table again, because you've had your opportunity, your time has run out. Well, God had told them how this would work out. He told them that Pharaoh would harden his own heart, then God would confirm that decision, and he won't let you go until it's with a strong arm, until it's at this end and final miracle. And because of that, They have nothing to fear from Pharaoh's empty threats because God had already told them how it would go beforehand. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God has been dealing with Pharaoh in Egypt by destroying everything they have worshipped. He kept denying them freedom or compromising God's requests through Moses. So God will continue with these signs, called the plagues, here as we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 10, verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. The word there means not just in a hurry, but in a hurried, energetic fashion. He's realizing we will have no food, our people are going to starve. And so he calls them in haste, and he says to them, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive, I pray you, my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Now, (laughs) you kind of want to shake him at this point, but let's just take it from the start. Says to them, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against who? You know that whole thing where I had him grab me by the neck and yank you out? Yeah, I'm sorry. That was not good. I shouldn't have done that. Here's the thing. We can say we were justified. We can say we had the right. But we know when we've done wrong. He knew what he'd done to them was wrong. Even when we convince ourselves otherwise. You know, Pharaoh minces no words. He says, I refuse to listen to God and I treated you harshly. Please forgive me. And yet... We see from verse 17, he's not repentant at all. Now therefore give, I pray you, my sin. What does it say? Only this one time. And entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this what? Only this death. Only this, you know. The audacity of such a request is baffling. Really, Pharaoh? You've been here before and you said just this time, last time. Have you forgotten how many times you've gone back on your word already? Have you forgotten how many times you've already asked for God to show mercy just this once with the implication you won't go against him again? And yet here he is in the audacity of it, asking God to do it again. We focus so much on God letting Pharaoh know how powerful he is. But that's not what God said Pharaoh would learn by the end of all this. He didn't say that Pharaoh would learn how powerful the Lord is. He said that he would know who the Lord was. He would learn all about his character, not just his power. Pharaoh had said those famous last words, who is the Lord and why should I listen to him? And the Lord said to him, well, I'm gonna give you a front row seat, buddy. You're gonna get to know exactly who I am and what I am like. And here's the truth of it. Pharaoh wouldn't just learn that God was powerful but he would learn that God is merciful. If he hadn't learned that, why would he bother asking again? 
when he hadn't done his part at all. Otherwise, he'd never make such an audacious request. We see this is true because God answers again, even though he's not truly penitent. See, God is merciful. And so when Pharaoh asked for mercy, God gave it. Look at verses 18 and 19. So Moses, he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them or drove them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the borders of Egypt. You know, just as God is almighty in judgment, he is almighty in mercy, amen? Not a single one left. And yet, Pharaoh, would you receive it for yourself personally? Pharaoh keeps calling him the Lord your God. Why will you not make him the Lord your God, Pharaoh? Sadly, he doesn't. Verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That confirmed his, hardened, his already hardened decision so that he would not let the children of Israel go. God confirmed his unrepentant heart. So, verse 21, we get to sign number nine. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt Three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, as in the third and the sixth sign, there isn't a warning for the ninth one. God just brings judgment. It's well deserved because he's already hardened his heart and not letting the people of Israel go. Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please have mercy. But then he doesn't let them go. So God now brings the ninth sign, which is supernatural darkness. A darkness that it says in verse 21, which may be felt. Some say this means actually that it was so dark that people had to feel around to know what was going on. The problem with that is the Bible says that nobody got out of bed for three days. That's how serious the darkness was. So no one was groping around, okay? And you might be saying, well, why didn't they eat? There was no food. It had been destroyed by the locusts. The nation was dying, and they weren't even dying in the light of day. How is it possible that light could be so absent that you could feel the darkness? Well, what's interesting is light isn't only a physical property. It's also an aspect of God's character, right? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let me propose something. What if God withdrew his presence so significantly that its absence could actually be felt? I frequently wondered, Lord, I don't know why you just don't wipe out the world. God made a promise he wouldn't. But conversely, I'm amazed how many times just good things happen to people. You go to a birthday party, might not be a believer there, but the kid's smiling and he's joying life and everybody's happy for him and it's just the enjoyment of life. Matthew 5.45 states that God causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he tells us to be, he says, pray for your enemies, do good to your enemies, bless them that curse you so that you can be like your father in heaven who causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. The idea is God is blessed, he blesses and he's good and he's kind to everybody, not just the righteous, but to the unrighteous too. Those that curse his name, he's still good to them. He's still kind to them. He still blesses them. He's just, everything that we experience here that's any, even remotely good is from him. Could you imagine what would happen if he removed his presence entirely? Could you imagine the darkness that would fall? Could you imagine how dull and how dark the world would be without his light and his love? You know, it's fascinating because scientists, you know, I'm not going to pretend to understand it, so if, if I inaccurately portray something, it's okay to correct me and tell me I'm wrong. But from what I understand, scientists are absolutely baffled by light. We haven't figured it out yet. We feel like we understand it. We understand how it moves and speed and this, that. But if you take certain elements and they, they say, you know, it's a constant, but then you put it in certain environments and it, it seems like maybe it's not. 
They don't understand all the intricate details of how it works when you break it down. And I wonder if that's because part of it has to do with God's presence. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But it's a fascinating thought. What if that presence, that light, was removed? The Bible here says in verse 22 that it was a thick darkness, or literally the deepest darkness. It came across the land. So much so that they saw not one another. Apparently, even natural light sources didn't work. All light was quenched. You know, light is required for life. We require sunlight to produce vitamin D, which is important for bone health. Plant life requires light for photosynthesis, right? And of course, you know, that's where they... Granted, again, I'm not a scientist, so I may not get this all right, but the idea is they get light and they reproduce things that, that creates our oxygen, right? So we can breathe and be healthy and whatnot. What happens when all that stuff starts to die? What happens when you're deprived of light? They say one of the best things to do if you struggle with depression is to go outside at least once a day, get some light. It's good for you. Well, here we have people for three days, 72 hours, absolute darkness, not even the light of a candle, nothing. Can you imagine the emotional impact that would have? Egypt is dying. They have no food. Everything's been destroyed. And now for 72 straight, that's a long time, folks. I mean, when Hurricane Charlie came through, we lost power for two weeks. And we, but that first night, we had nothing. We had a couple batteries, you know, with flashlights and things like that. But I mean, it, it was dark. Life was just dark everywhere. I remember before they brought down a generator, it was like if someone brought us down a generator so we could have some power and stuff and turn some lights on. And it was crazy just how dark it was at night. Like, and just the, the even the, without the buzz of, of activity, nothing, it's just n- dark. And it was unnerving. And we had panels on the, the, the windows because, you know, there was another one coming. You know, if you remember when Charlie came through, it was like one month later, another one came right through. So we just left the panels up. So you couldn't even get light through the windows. And I remember the whole family just, you started to see it, you know. We just started to get really depressed because that darkness just sucks the life out of you. Now imagine you got no food, nothing for 72 hours. And God didn't warn Egypt, so they didn't know it was only going to last for three days. You have no idea that you're ever going to see the light of day again. Wow. Can you imagine what went through their minds during those 72 hours? You know, it's interesting that God saves this one for the last sign before he takes the sign of the firstborn. Because after dismantling many of the other deities in Egypt's pantheon, God finally takes out their chief deity, Ra, the sun god. Ra ruled all parts of the created world, the sky, the land, the underworld, everything. He was their chief deity. And Pharaoh was considered his physical manifestation on earth. In their legend, of course, every day when the sun would come up, it was Ra riding on his solar boat. And then when the sun would go down, he'd be taking his boat back into the dock, I guess. But now the sun doesn't come up. For all intensive purposes, Ra is dead. Everything they had hoped in, everything they had trusted in, everything that gave structure and order to their world, God had defeated. All of Egypt that they knew, everything they understood and believed is taken out with one word from Jehovah. As you can imagine, this created quite the crisis for Pharaoh. So verse 24, And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go you, serve the Lord. Only, come on buddy, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. I'll concede that, but you've got to leave your flocks behind. 
When the darkness is over, Pharaoh proposes another compromise to Moses. He says, let your flocks and your herds be stayed. The phrase there means, let them be corralled into a certain controlled area, most likely under Egyptian guard as a pledge that they'll return. But Moses is so not budging. He is, he is no. He says, you must give us, if you're going to leave our uh, herds here, then you need to actually give us enough animals that it's the same amount. Give a, you would have to give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings so that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. So our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not be one hoof left behind. Pharaoh's <laughs> like, you know, I'm not even giving you a leg. <laughs> or, or Moses says, I'm not even giving you a leg. Every animal, every part of them is coming with us. For we know not what we must serve the Lord with until we get there. So Moses says, I'm not budging a bit. No compromise. And so Pharaoh, it comes to now a sticking point for him, and he's had enough. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto them, get you from me, take heed to yourself, see my face no more, for in that day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you have spoken well, I will see your face again no more. Pharaoh threatens Moses' life at this point. He says, get you from me. Take heed to yourself. You better put up a guard, buddy. That's what that means. You better keep your guard up. And if you see my face, see my face no more, because the day that you see it, you're a dead man. Now, the phrase there, see my face, is another word that means to set, set your face with a purpose to see me. And, and what it means is, is don't come negotiate. Don't come back to this table again, this negotiation table with me again, because the moment you do, you're a dead man. I'm not hearing it anymore. And Moses says to him, you have spoken well, or you have spoken accurately. Why does he say that? Well, he says it because it was never a negotiation. He says, you've spoken accurately that I'm not going to come back to the negotiating table because I've never negotiated with you, Pharaoh. It's never been a negotiating table. I've told you what God said you needed to do, and you've rejected it. And so at this point, there's only one thing left to do, and that's going to be the 10th plague. Now, Pharaoh must have thought that this would frighten Moses. It was the last card he had to play. But little did he know that it was not Moses' time that had run out. It was actually his time that had finally run out. God is through with trying to reason with Pharaoh. The next sign would be death for the firstborn. The very thing that God had warned Pharaoh about from the very beginning, when he said to him, if you refuse to do this, let's find it, chapter 7, Moses, he comes to him and he says, I'm going to take your firstborn if you don't do this. And that's part of the thing that God tells him from the very beginning. Now he elongates it out, that judgment that God had said was coming. He elongates it for nine signs, nine plagues, nine opportunities Pharaoh has to repent. But at this point, Moses says, you're right. I'm not coming back to this table again because you've had your opportunity. Your time has run out. Now, you might be wondering, how is Moses so calm in the face of such threats on his life? Well, God had told them how this would work out. He told them that Pharaoh would harden his own heart, that God would confirm that decision, and he won't let you go until it's with a strong arm, until it's at this end and final miracle. And because of that, they have nothing to fear from Pharaoh's empty threats, because God had already told them how it would go beforehand. When we get to chapter 11, the timing is a little interesting because the Hebrew doesn't have what we call a pluperfect tense, which means you're talking about something that happened already. The way they do that tense is they put it side by side 
and they talk about it as what's called a parenthetical. Chapter 11 is a parenthetical chapter where the events are actually occurring right here in chapter 10, but it makes it look like it's in chapter, it's happening after Moses leaves. At the end of verse, at the end of chapter 10, does Moses ever leave his presence? No. So we're still there. The words that are about to be spoken are actually spoken to Pharaoh right here. And this is why he tells him, get out of my face, leave my presence or I'll kill you. For the Lord had said, and that's how it should be translated, not the Lord said now, but the Lord had said unto Moses, yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And then afterwards he will let you go from here. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out from here altogether. So speak now in the ears of the people. So this is before Moses goes to Pharaoh this last time. He says, speak now in the ears of the people and let every man borrow. It's not really borrowing, it's just back wages. And let every man borrow of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, jewels of silver and jewels of gold. The word they borrow means to ask. They didn't take it from them. They asked them because it was back wages. And so the Lord gave the people, the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great. His reputation was held in very high esteem in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. The people were looked upon favorably because their own Pharaoh had forsaken them. Moses was looked upon favorably because he's the one who took all the plagues away. And so Moses, in verse 4, he's already prepped the people. They're already asking for gifts. And so as he comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says to him, you can go, but you can't take your herds. Moses says, we're going to take our herds. Pharaoh says, no. Moses then speaks the words of verses 4 through 8. Verses 28 and 29 occur after this. Okay? Verse 4, Moses said unto Pharaoh, Thus says the, it doesn't say unto Pharaoh, but that's who he's talking to. Thus says the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue. There will be no weeping and wailing there. There will be no barking of animals because of the weeping, weeping and wailing they hear there. That you may know how that the Lord does put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me saying, get out of here and all the people that follow you. And after that, Pharaoh, I will go out. I will leave and I won't bother you again. Now it's at that point that Pharaoh says to him, you get out of here. You take heed to yourself. If I see you again, I will kill you. And that's when Moses says, you're not going to see me in this way again. You will not see my face again. And so the Bible says that Pharaoh, he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. Moses is so angry because he knows the death that's coming is so easily preventable. Just let the people go. Let God's people go. And you don't have to go through this. Again, we see the love and the grace and the mercy of God and his servants, even in the midst of judgment. So the Lord said unto Moses, verse 9, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you, Moses. Moses is angry. And he says, but he's not going to listen to you, Moses. I know that's hard to believe, but that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. And this concludes the second section of the book of Exodus. We're going to turn our attention back to Israel and leave Pharaoh behind as the main focus. Now, a couple things I want to address. 
One of the reasons I bring this up and teach these two passages together is because frequently if you go to atheist Bible contradiction websites, they'll say, the Bible contradicts itself. Pharaoh said, you're not going to see my face anymore. If you do, you'll die. And Moses said, you're right. I'm not going to see your face again. But then he sees his face in chapter 11. No, it's the pluperfect in the Hebrew. They don't have a way of showing that. So it's shown in this way, side by side, to show you that this is something that happened beforehand, okay? If you have an NIV, it actually translates it that way. And the Lord had said unto Moses, and the Lord had said, because that's the way it should be understood, the way they word it and the proximity they place it to the events of chapter 10. So it's no contradiction here. Now you might be saying, well, wait a second. I've read the story. I know that after Pharaoh loses his firstborn, he summons Pharaoh and Pharaoh comes to him and says, you can go, take everybody and get out of here and bless me too. But what's interesting is Moses prophesies how that's going to happen right here in verse 8 of chapter 11. And all these your servants shall come down unto me. And they'll bow down themselves unto me saying, go, get you out and all the people that follow you. It would never be Pharaoh that personally came to do it. He would send his servants to do it. So he never saw Pharaoh's face again. So sorry to destroy your Ten Commandments image or your Joseph from Egypt, Prince of Egypt, whatever. It didn't happen that way. They didn't have one last hurrah together. This was the last time they see each other face to face with a little bit of research like you would do any, with any written work. You would never just take someone's words, especially if you're removed from them by 3,000 years of history, culture, topography, geography, you name it, and expect that you would be an expert on it from just reading it at face value. You would never expect to do that. If you were going to try to understand Herodotus or you know, Pliny or somebody else who was an ancient writer, you would go get the context first and you would understand the history and the geography and the situation and the culture before you would pretend to know that you know what he's talking about. And when you do that with the supposed contradictions in the Bible and you breach the barriers of language, culture, history, and all that stuff you can come to a very easy conclusion that clears up whatever might be a contradiction. This is the last time that Moses is going to see Pharaoh. And when God stops trying to bring a person to repentance, it's the worst judgment a person can experience. That God would not send Moses to Pharaoh anymore, that he was left to his own devices. Genesis 6 verse 3 says that God's spirit would not always strive with man. That's just how it is. There comes a place where God says, if this is really what you want, You got it. What a sad finale for Pharaoh. God gave him so many opportunities, but all that awaits now is destruction, just like the scripture says. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And yet Pharaoh has no one to blame but himself. Now you might be asking, Will, why did God give us a self-destruct button? (laughs) I'm, I'm a fan. You ever watch the Phineas and Ferb episodes? They're adorable, very funny, very cute. And Doofenshmirtz, he's the big evil guy, and his plan is to always take over the Tri-County area. Yeah, he's got high aims. But in that, every one of his evil devices always has a self-destruct button. And you kind of look at him like, why? Why? (laughs) He's not a very good villain. But we might ask the question of, like, why does God give us a self-destruct button? Well, here's the reality. God created us in his own image, which means that we are also free moral agents. We have the ability to choose. And too often, our free will serves as that moral self-destruct button because we refuse to bend the knee. So here's the cool part. If you humble yourself before the Lord and you're not like Pharaoh, you don't have to worry about your self-destruct button. You'll never hit it by mistake, trust me. (laughs) Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Don't be like Pharaoh. 
For God resists the proud, but what does he do for the humble? He gives grace, right? He gives grace to the humble. Grace upon grace upon grace. I don't know about you, but I want lots of grace. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh, Lord, I imagine all of us here tonight, and hopefully that's the case, that we all know you, and we've all come to that place of humbling ourselves, and you're no longer the Lord, your God, but you're the Lord, our God. And Lord, we we thank you for our salvation. But Lord, even in those who are your children, we can sometimes become petty little tyrants who become stubborn in little tiny areas of our lives, or we have little kingdoms of our heart that we refuse to yield to you. Lord, we don't want to be like that either. We don't want to find ourselves, as as a brother mentioned me tonight, having two masters, where we end up loving one and despising the other. We end up striving for one thing, and you tend to get in the way. Lord, we don't want to be like that. We just want to be fully yielded to you, where, Lord, nothing's in the way, that you're our master. You're the one that we love. You're the one that we yield to, uh, because you're good, and your mercy endures forever. Lord, we need your grace, and so we humble ourselves before you right now. In Jesus' name. Amen. God is almighty in power, but he is also almighty in mercy. God is slow to wrath. He is slow to get angry. He doesn't sit up in heaven waiting for us to stumble and fall so he can destroy us. He wants all mankind to come to repentance and to the knowledge of him because he loves everyone. He loves you. Don't harden your heart against God. You can come to Him with your sins and burdens and fears and doubts, and He will never turn you away. Should you have questions or would like prayer concerning this or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel, Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.